0: Welcome back to Left Thinker. I'm Ryan Cooper.
1: And I'm Alexi the Greek. And we have a real banger for you today. A friend of the pod, Pete Davis, is coming to talk about his new documentary that he made with his sister. How cool is that? Uh, Join or Die. And this is actually not about violent revolution uh, as much as we might want it to be. It is a great documentary about about Robert Putnam, in part, and his famous uh, book, And scholarly study bowling alone, but also just more generally, it's a documentary about civic associations and their importance to democracy. And, you know, in our discussion, you'll see to the left and the cause for justice and uh, inculcating freedom and human flourishing. Uh, You know, Pete's, he's a friend of the pod, so you probably all know him, but he has a great book uh, that we talked about before. Um, called dedicated the case for commitment in an age of infinite, infinite browsing. I mean, you, you might r- recall Ryan, the kind of long haulers who have these projects over many years that they're involved with. So this is like a related project, this film. And, uh, Pete, Pete also, you know, you might know him from the rabbit hole podcast. Uh, previously he was, uh, current affairs as well. Um, he's just a great guy, really smart and, uh, Yeah, I think you're going to like this discussion. It it dives into a lot of interesting, um, you know, political science, sociology, uh, and just, you know, relevant life lessons for our, our flourishing and happiness and our understanding that the, the individual, uh, misery or happiness that we experience is bound up with not just our political institutions, but, um, but the extent to which we actually have community, the extent to which we actually have these um these different associations that we're a part of and that we respond to and are shaped by.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and um, you know, the I think the the interesting thing about the the movie from a political standpoint is how you have so many different Uh, uh, people across the political spectrum who are who are interested in the argument. You have a union organizer. You have David Brooks. You have Hillary Clinton. You have Pete Buttigieg. Um, and there,
1: Glenn Glenn Lowry. If I said his name,
0: Glenn Lowry. Yeah, the uh, a famous black conservative academic. Um, and yet i i i I think that you know ultimately it it redounds to not exactly, I wouldn't say socialism or the left per se, but it redounds towards democracy, you know, to say that, you know, what we need is, is a a thicker set of, of social infrastructure and like people who are actually interacting with each other on a regular basis. And, um, You know, it's not going to automatically produce the revolution per se, but it might militate against something like, you know, January 6th or, you know, like Donald Trump. Um. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it, it both explains in many ways the evils or diseases of the body politic that are often, um, you know, epitomized in a symptom like January 6th uh, yeah. or in the su- success of Donald Trump. But it also uh, diagnostically offers uh, a treatment and shows uh, what a healthy body politic looks like and what that requires. And, like, you know, democracy power to the people rule by the people is not just it can't just be formal positions of political power and, and it has to mean that we the people are involved relationally with each other and in the day to day uh shaping of each other and who we are and who we care about and what we care about and what we're doing about the state of things and uh so there's a history lesson here but there's also a, theor- a theoretical uh, insight here and um Yeah, I think there's a lot to learn from this conversation.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And uh, it's just also a good watch. So, you know, I recommend... You know I' was just i i sat sat down and be like, "Okay, I gotta do my podcast prep and then i just i was glued to the to the t v yeah, the, for the yeah. computer screen
1: it's really went on aesthetically it's just i mean it's engaging i I liked even just like the design of the kind of uh you know images that were pulled together in addition to the cinematography, and both Bob Putnam and Pete are just lovely people,
0: yeah, nice folks, and so um yeah, uh Without any more delay, let's uh let's get to our interview with Pete Davis uh after I tell you about our uh sponsorship with the American <laughs> Prospect. So, if you uh subscribe at the $10 a month tier, you'll get a free digital subscription to the website. Subscribe at $5 a month, you'll get all of our bonus episodes, which you also get at $10 a month, of course. Uh, Otherwise, you can like, subscribe, send to your friends. uh, But wait,
1: wait, wait. I'll say because of the guest and the topic. Uh, as much as all the people listening are already kind of part of, not kind of, you are part of the Left Anchor community, especially if you're a regular <laughs> listener. Uh, if you become a patron, you're even more part of the Left Anchor community and you, and you have another way. Is that too? Is it embarrassing for me to use that? It's, it's true, though. It's true. And then you have another way to interact with us, email us, uh, DM us. And uh, no, we appreciate you. Whatever level of participation in this community uh, you uh, you have. So
0: Absolutely. So let's uh, let's get into our interview with Pete Davis right now. Uh, Pete Davis, welcome back to the program, uh, returning yes. guest, friend of the pod. We're so
2: glad to be here. Two timer.
0: Yeah, we're 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 now. Uh, we'll get into it later, but we're one step in terms of meeting away from Pete Buttigieg and Hillary Clinton now. <laughs> so we our social capital has one, leveled one degree. up, baby.
1: One, one degree of separation. I love, um, I
0: love it. No, so, so you've made this film. I watched it this afternoon, the film, join or die. you know, join uh, or die. To, again, it's called join or die. Uh, that, that, well, for, so for my first question to you, is that an intentional reference to the, the famous like revolutionary war flag? Uh, it is a
2: reference to that. Um, you know, I, I feel a little strange about it, you know, in, in its, uh, in its vulgar understanding of it, of people saying the states need to come together to fight the revolution, that is what it is in reference to. Um, but there is like a darker like French and Indian War join or die flag that I don't want to be in reference to. But, yeah. um, but I'll take the more popular version of that. Um, and, you know, our message that we're trying to say is kind of taking the word join and playing around with it around joining clubs instead of just joining the revolution. Yeah. So, so to
0: start us off here, um, you're in, it's, it's partly a history of clubs. It's partly about a fellow named Bob Putnam. Um, but I think that, that like initially what will be interesting to viewers is a history of what used to be an incredibly common experience, which is like joining all these various associations. Um, the, 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 Elks Lodge, the Kiwanis Club, the Rotarians, the, like, all of these weird little societies, uh, that, that for most people, I think most Americans nowadays, that is not a part of their lives. And yet it used to be a sort of, Uh, incredibly common. Like people would join, they would be in like three or four or five of these things. And it would be like a major part of how you lived your life. And, and so tell us about that history to sort of lay the the groundwork.
2: Yeah, you know, my my sister and I, we made this film together and, you know, we often talked about that this film is styled after the Lorax in that, you know, in, in the original <laughs> Lorax by Dr. Seuss, you know, this kid goes and talks to this old man in a tower and he says, you know, there used to be Truffula trees in this country. <laughs> um, and let me tell you about the Truffula trees. It was really amazing. And then the Truffula trees disappeared. And in some ways that is what this is, is, you know, us, I'm a millennial and Gen Z even more so. We we are like the first generation that is losing the cultural memory. So boomers basically would remember that their parents were part of these clubs. They are part of the clubs less so, and we are the first that will like totally forget um, that this was part of American culture. And you know, there's this nostalgic feeling that we used to be more communal. We used to know our neighbors more. We used to have dinner parties more and picnics more and be part of these clubs. Um, and what we, f- you know, w- what we focus on is this one researcher, Robert Putnam, who wrote this famous book bowling alone where he actually found the data and you know in multiple ways you know not just one data set um, you know he found it through time diary entries you know the Census Bureau has been keeping time diary entries and we literally spent more hours during the week at club meetings we have ad um, we have ad companies that did market research and they literally asked people how many times have you been to a club meeting it was double 50 years ago we have Roper public opinion polls where people are asking Were you part of, you know, were you a leader of a club? Have you been to a town meeting? Have you been to a dinner party? Have you been to a picnic? It's usually, you know, roughly about these all average to about double 50 years ago. And, you know, the moment we're saying, you know, what we're trying to say with this and what Bob tries to say with his research is this is civic infrastructure. This isn't just like a interesting cultural change that we used to, you know, you know, dance disco and now we don't anymore. It is a major part of of our democracy it's a major part of government's functioning well it's a major part of our health and you know for lefties who like me who care about this it's a major part of social movements you know it's if you read the beginning of stride toward freedom martin luther king's memoir of um, the Montgomery bus boycott, the first chapter is just a list of all the clubs that participated in the bus boycott. And we use clubs in a broad sense to include these, you know, Kiwanis and Rotary, but also unions and congregations and any ways that people get together, you know, black Panthers are a club, um, you know, in our sense of what clubs are. Um, So, uh, you know, that's, that's what the story is. It's basically, there's been a decline and this is very important. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and-
0: Go ahead, Ryan. Was it uh, uh- a... <laughs> One to to one more framing question. You know, I've I had I've never read Bowling Alone. I, I may pick it up now that we've uh, you know that I've watched this this show. He seems like a, a nice gentleman. Um, I teach it, but it's it's so a lot of it has to do with Italy, right? I did I didn't know this. Um, so so well he has he has research in Italy that that it's about it's like the quality of governance, sort of as he defines it, versus you know like like what is associated with that, and he looked into a bunch of stuff. And can you explain his argument about Italy? Because I had never heard of that before and it was quite interesting.
2: Yeah, this is, you know, Bob is famous for bowling alone in America. That was like his viral moment where he had his 15 minutes of, you know, everyone talking about it in the newspapers in the late 90s. Um, But, you know, there's this, among academics, like among political scientists, he was academically famous before he was popular famous because of this book before bowling alone called Making Democracy Work, which is kind of like the, the Like saga prequel. Of bowling alone, and what it was was he was just an ordinary political scientist, like doing boring studies that no one, you know, I I, nothing against it, but you know, studies only academics read, um, and that were you know very important to academics, but not crossing through to a popular audience. And he happened upon this perfect political science experiment, which was that in the seventies, Italy broke up from a centralized government into states. Basically, they had regions, and they the constitutional change resulted in all the regions getting the same structure of regional government. It's as if you know America was only centralized in the one day their states. And he said, "Well, that's a perfect natural political science experiment because I can test." What governments succeed and what governments fail? So he first tested, how do you determine government success? And he found, you know, very rigorous correlations between all the measures of success. Like, were they actually able to do what they said? Did they have a stable government? Were the people happy? Did, um, you know, he did studies as meticulous as he'd send them a request for a reimbursement for something because Italy had public health care. And so he'd say, I was injured abroad. Will you reimburse me? Which is just a story of how good other countries' healthcare are, you could get injured abroad and your government would reimburse (laughs) you for the medical bill. Um, And time, how fast the governments would get back. And, you know, Emilio Romagna was the best at everything. And Calabria and Basilicata was the worst at everything. And it was kind of linear across that. And then he tested what correlated with, you know, success. And he found that the most... Uh, rigorous correlation the uh, uh, you know 0.91 of whatever the you know out of one um, was not economics not, you know, uh, urbanism, not, you know, polarization. It was civic culture. The amount of people that trusted each other, the amount of people that were part of soccer leagues and bocce clubs and, and singing groups, the amount of people that read the newspaper, the amount of people that said, you know, um, I get together with friends and most people can be trusted, you know, that was what correlated with it. And that kind of set off this wave of, treating civic culture as important to politics um, in the political science literature. And so when he came to America, he's like, oh, I wonder how our civic culture is doing. And that led to the Bowling Alone discovery that our civic culture is not doing well. Yeah.
1: no, And there's so much wonderful data and explanation of how the data makes the argument uh, over a long long period of time, right? Uh, Years of research and uh, different times in which um the reception of this argument is being debated and so forth. Um and, and I want to return to that and to to the to the kind of nuance of the argument. Uh for example, the the idea that um you know if you don't have weak institutions, but you have strong civic associations, that can work, uh, but not vice versa. You, you know, it doesn't matter if you have good institutions if if you don't have, uh, right, the kind of social infrastructure and the social capital. And and so we can dig into those kinds of things. But I want to return, and you know, you, Robert Putnam, famous scholar here, but you call him Bob for a reason, right? He he was your teacher, and he is your friend, and and so I think that's so important in a documentary about community and belonging and relationships.
2: Uh, maybe talk a bit about, uh, yeah, your
1: relationship yeah I, I
2: recently it. discovered I, I was talking to an education expert and there is a method of learning called relational learning where um, a learner just gets really into the person themselves that is teaching the idea and I got diagnosed as like a relational learner I just become obsessed with the philosopher I'm into or like and if I don't like the person I don't want to learn anything from them and this isn't necessarily a good thing but it's how I learn and so I you know took this class he had a seminar called community and America. And basically I was a political science major in college and Political science is this like horribly cold, you know, at the peak of when I was there, which was like mid late 2000s. You know, it's just totally quantitative. It's everyone debating presidential system versus parliamentary system. It's like people talking about the genius of different constitutional clauses. And I wanted like nothing to do with that. I wanted the total opposite of the softy political science, which was the political science of like neighborhoods and, you know, community organizing and things like that. And he was kind of the the big person on that end of the spectrum. And so I took this Community in America class and it has haunted me ever since. It's basically like one of those classes that never leaves you where he basically, and I say this in the movie, you know, he's saying, you know, everyone's going to tell you pay attention to the president of the United States, but I'm going to tell you pay attention to the how the presidents of our civic clubs are doing. And, you know, that lens I just took with me for the rest of my life. And I just take the community lens and look at everything, you know, you can look at a mega church and you can look at it theologically, or you can look at it and say, that's 16,000 people meeting in Exurban Ohio who are all in a social network together. Um, you know, you can look at, um, uh, you know, an institution and say, it's not doing well because of funding or it's not doing well because of, specific institutional design, but it also could be that it's something about how the civic culture was created in that institution. And this has really interesting cross-cutting ideological stuff. So... Sometimes, you know, and we show it in the movie. We have this little like two minutes in the movie where we do a little like, what do you think of community to a far right guy and to a centrist and then to a lefty? And, you know, the far right guy goes, oh, I love community because it means no government. You know, and the centrist goes, you know, I love community because it's a way that I can have a happy applause line at a speech without kind of doing a hard decision of a trade off. But then, you know, Bob has a line in the movie where he says, You know, uh, um, and Bob, you know, it's hard to tell where he falls. Um, He has a line in the movie where he goes, uh, If you have crime in your neighborhood, the social capital literature says if you had to choose between 10% more cops on the beat or 10% more neighbors knowing each other's first names it is so clear in the social capital literature to choose the latter that is doing so much more work than the brute force of some like bureaucratic institution and that sounds anarchist basically like it's like it's like do mutual aid or something you sound like some collective issuing a statement and um, but then it cuts a weird other way where the next line is he goes you know if you have a school and you want want 10% more funding or 10% more parents involved, the social capital literature says you get more bang for your buck with 10% more parents involved. And then that makes us feel weird. So it's just a really interesting cross cutting um, ideology. We're, we're, we're,
1: we're going to co-opt it for
2: the left, Pete. We're going to totally co-opt it for the because
1: I have an explanation. You tell me, you tell me if you, you like my explanation for why it, it appeals to everyone and yet it's still more leftist than the others. And, and yeah. this is my, my thought. Um, the question arises, what is the chicken and the egg, uh, origin of what makes for strong social capital and for strong social networks? And what gives parents the ability, the conditions? And I think Eddie Gloud and maybe, uh, others in the film talk about this a little bit. What, what conditions give rise to these strong associations and to the joining kind of, uh, inclination ability uh, reality. And, and I would say that for a leftist, right, uh, if you strip away kind of like at the material conditions level, if you strip away the ability for people to survive or thrive uh, materially, uh, or conversely if you provide uh the ability to have a living wage and healthcare and housing and all these things then of course people are more able inclined and have opportunity to to join and and extend themselves beyond just their kind of navel gazing selves uh there's other things of course you know tv and all these other uh things that we can dig into but like broadly speaking you know it's very nice to say that giving more money to school won't help if the parents aren't involved but you know if you control for other things, the household income does matter quite a bit, like for example right
2: oh, yeah okay. i you know I totally agree, and you know one of the heroes, one of the protagonists of the movie is northern Italy <laughs> and northern Italy is like the major regions that are the heroes of the movie of northern Italy are run by lefties and um and have this strong lefty history um and you know when you start thinking really rigor like there's a path towards more and deeper and deeper take like communitarianism taken seriously walks you down a path from like at the beginning. It's like, we should all volunteer more and a thousand points of light. You know, you start with George HW Bush, but you walk down the path and it eventually is like, you know, your whole housing system should be designed around community. Your whole, we should have cooperatives because they integrate us more. We should have a social caring system where we have participatory care. And there are actually, you know, co-ops in Northern Italy where, you know, the community, the patients, the patients, relatives, the government, and the nonprofits like community organizations that run it all run a hospital together or something. And it like sounds like a lefty utopian that they do that because they say the goal, like one of our metrics is not just the like, uh, you know, cost benefit libertarian neoliberal answer, but it's also not just the like liberal outcomes answer. It's not just like, how many people did you heal? It says in everything we do, we need to also measure is it building community or not. And even if it involves getting to the outcomes that you want slower for the sake of it contributing to community, they take it because that's a metric that they take seriously. And I think it'll walk us towards that, that level of acting. And you can see it in like really clear examples of major progressive projects. We have like the four day work week, I think is like one of the grand communitarian projects of our time, because what's, what are you going to do with that extra day? It's going to be care. You know, I don't think people are going to be playing video games with that. I think they're going to be that's right, That's doing right. doing care so, yeah. work and community work, you yes. know, or play yeah. video games with friends to get connected with their friends more. <laughs> you know? Yeah, this is absolutely. what this is my this
0: is my like traditionalist, you know, opinion. Like we need to return we need to return to land parties, man. We need to we need to have people <laughs> yeah. playing video games together in this same location. Yeah, halo,
2: halo together. <laughs> yes, God, I remember doing
0: that. You you'd hook like four different Xboxes together and have you know all the jocks and nerds fight each other. Um the but uh okay i won't get down that rabbit hole too much i honestly believe this could be like revolutionary in terms of of american politics or at least like strongly positive but like you know you sort of get into this in the 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 film a little bit but do you have strong opinions about causes like you know you you basically have from the 1950s To, you know, present day, like a sort of straight line decline on almost every aspect of sort of civic infrastructure of like the way that people would people come together, whether it's religion, whether it's uh, uh, clubs, uh, you name it. Um, You know, there's a number of hypotheses that you could sort of throw out. You have like sort of uh, inequality. There's uh, the Internet, phones, social media, Uh, You've got the decline of unions, um, you know, the decline of religion in general uh, and um, neoliberalism, which is, of course, related to the uh, union aspect. You have the built environment changing, though, of course, that was sort of like by the 1950s, that was already sort of, sort of completed, but it's like a much more hostile form to, to like interacting with people by the sort of 1960s. Um, and then you have like the pandemic, I don't know. Is it sort of one of those stand out or is it all of them Yeah, You know,
2: when Bob wrote Bowling Alone, he had two culprits. Um, one was television and he had like a lot of stuff showing that like, A lot of the reasons we did Community was it was a way to entertain ourselves. And then suddenly, if we have this amazing theater production in our house all the time, you know, it becomes more interesting than going to the Rotary Club. Um, The other, he said, which isn't really a cause, but it's like a really interesting clue, is he called it generational change. And we didn't get into that in the movie, but he has a whole section in Bowling Alone on this, which is the people, the generation that were joiners back then are still joiners today in their nineties and each successive generation were less and less joiners. And so it's not like some other things like, you know, there are other things where everyone is declining at the same time, but this is like every gen more and more. So there's something about generational transfer that's like in there, according to his bowling alone stuff. He's now gotten a really fuzzy and kind of, um, you know, disowned a bit. You know, he's gotten a little fuzzier and saying, I don't want to say it's TV. I don't want to say it's generational change. And he has this answer that I kind of agree with and have a little bit more of a lefty way of putting, which is he just says there is a multi-institutional, multi, you know, ideological, institutional moral and cultural shift that all goes all at once and that sounds like a cop out answer but you know basically you know our ideologies and our institutions are in a dance with each other you know we have new ideologies that arrive and then they create institutions that fit that ideology and then when those institutions are created or the alternate institutions are destroyed you know it supports the ideology and basically like individualism starts as this trickle that might even start as this good cause. Like there's, you know, he points to in the fifties, there's all these books on conformity and the fear of conformity and like, you know, great books that we're probably inspired by about the creepiness of how, you know, how communal we were and how, and there are all these amazing, you know, rights causes that come out of like, oh my gosh, this thing that we all have to conform to is totally oppressive and totally hierarchical. And so you have some good causes, But then, you know, there's all this writing in intellectual history about how the the rights movements were hijacked by the right. And suddenly you have like Reagan sounding like a hippie of do your own thing and then you have you know the california ideology and you know silicon valley building things in an individualist mindset and the like communitarian counterculture of silicon valley gets wiped out by the corporatism of silicon valley and then suddenly ads are starting to appeal to your individualism instead of your conformity and then suddenly presidential speeches start sounding less like kennedy and start sounding more like your rights to do whatever you want and then suddenly both parties have their own thing of this and then suddenly you forget. And, you know, it sounds like I'm just doing random stuff, but it's all basically like this is like hegemony. It, it slowly grows of yeah, different ideologies, scrum- of different cu- cultures. And then it reaches mm-hmm. a high point And you've even forgotten the other way of being like one of the things that we're trying to get across. And I think like DSA people and union organizers are trying to get across is like. Finding that tiny ember of a cultural memory of like living for something bigger than yourself or like, like politics can be about, you know, not just like fulfilling your hyper individualist needs together as like some deal you make with other people, but actually about, you know, transforming yourself in something larger than yourself. That is so dead and it, it's like such a tiny counterculture and we need a blow on that. And like spread that fire. So we have and then this is the hopeful story, a trickle of ideologies and institutions that are that alternative that can slowly over time build up our counter hegemony that hopefully by 2070 people forget that, you know. Hey, did you know libertarians were on the cover of like Newsweek as like the heroes of everything and ads used to say like have it your own way instead of saying like, you know, it's good to help each other out or something. <laughs> and that doesn't yeah, mean yeah. that doesn't mean return to the old conformity. It means in our time with our knowledge of justice movements and rights movements we had, can we bake something that fits our time and our knowledge and our sense of justice that's a little more communal? I don't know. What do you all think about that?
1: It's the dialectic baby. (laughs) Like, you know, it's moving forward. It's, you know what, what she said to, uh, reminds me of our, our buddy Harvey J.K., who uh, is really dedicated to reclaiming our history, our radical history, for the purpose of using cultural memory to advance uh, you know, a radical future, where, where true freedom, true community, true justice is pursued. Uh, and the agency is given to those today to draw on uh, the past for inspiration, for strategy, uh, for the meaning of terms like freedom and justice and community. And I think your project, fits in so well with that. It fits in so well with what you wrote and committed, which by the way, our 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 fans uh love that book, loved, loved uh so much. We, I, we've had so many guests from Corey Robin to Astra Taylor to Greg Grandin to you name it. And you were up there with the most referenced oh, books. It's uh, an honor. All uh, my heroes just really <laughs> Yeah, yeah, just wonderful, wonderful people, wonderful books. But uh to your to your point, I think I I think the um the movement forward needs to reclaim the history that you're diving into to, to reappropriate leftist understandings of these concepts, um, uh, and to, to, you know, fight on this contested ground of what, what it means to have community and sustain community, what it means to be free and, uh, to have an active kind of citizenship where if you don't want to be ruled and dominated by, by those with concentrated power and wealth, whether, whether politically or economically, you, you need to kind of take back the agency and the decision making and get involved. And that doesn't have to mean formally in government. There's so many ways to be involved. And that's something that can sustain so many different projects that together are actually bringing you know, democracy back Kind of like Astor Taylor's book title Which is amazing Democracy may not exist But we'll miss Amen. it when it's gone what a I great love, What a like, great way of
2: putting it Yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so, like Everyone always says When something horrible happens They always say Well, what can I do as an individual? And I've got an answer Nothing <laughs> You know, like because people want to say there is a lot you could do as an individual. But, you know, the answer is no, you have to join something. You have to work with other people. Um, you know, That's there right. is some, yeah. I don't want to be too extreme, like being brave and being a courageous whistleblower and, you know, giving what you can is important. But eventually we need, you know, I really love this Ralph Nader point. He says all change happens with 51 percent support and one percent working. By which he means, <laughs> you know. Okay, we got three. How many people do we have in America now? Four hundred million people.
0: Three hundred like, what? 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 Three hundred thirty million.
2: Oh, three hundred thirty. Okay, so so yep. we need like. 170 million people agreeing with us. Like, you can't just have your crazy 1% that believes something, and, and we need 170 million to agree with us. And there's a lot of great things that if we went with what a majority of people agreed on, we'd be a much better country. But then we need about 3.3 million Americans doing the work, like 10 hours a week, basically. And you know, my whole theory of change, my silver bullet, is if we could get those 3.3 million doing the work that's how all changes right. happened and um, yeah. and uh, and if we can just get the muscles, and we've had that before with these major causes, abolition and civil rights and women's uh, suffrage and, you know, labor, the labor movement, you know, um, you know, all those wins were only like 33% of the country in unions, you know, a third of the well, country and, in unions. And
1: that's the other piece. We we haven't mentioned it, but we, we talked about the decline of social capital and the decline of, of participation in clubs and unions and all these things. But as, uh, you know, Professor Putnam points out in the documentary, he forgot for a moment the other side, which is beforehand, it wasn't like a, a static thing. There was this increase and, 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 you know, this long trajectory the other way in joining different associations. And for me, that maps on to social democracy and the decline is neoliberalism, right? Like
2: th- there's a reason those lines match up with the decades they do, right? Totally. You know, and this is what like people like Jane McAlevey talk about is like, you can... Pat, you know, she, she sometimes, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but she's sometimes like, it's nice to pass the pro act. It's nice to repeal right to work in your state. But in the end, we literally need people joining these unions and being strike ready, you know, Um, and like, we can't just rely, you know, I'm a progressive wonk by day, you know, and like, I love, I love all of our wonky work. I love, you know, what we all write about. But, um, you know, in the end, we need people who are ready to be the muscle of, of all these causes. And, and that looks like Thursday night meetings. <laughs> it like, looks like a really undramatic thing. And, you know, and it looks like, you know, and, and it's, it can't be like finger waggy, the Thursday night meetings. It has to be a transformation. I'm going to sound really Catholic now, but like, it has to be a trans like I'm sounding like one of these Absolutely. spiritual priest or- homilies. It has to be a transformation <laughs> of the heart. Like you need to have a conversion of the heart, you know, and absolutely, we opened the movie with these guys at the Oddfellows Lodge in Waxahachie, Texas. And we made him, you know, he opened, rolled up his sleeve and he has a tattoo that um, says FL and T on it, which is friendship, love and truth, which is the creed of the Oddfellows. And he inked it on his body because his... He it has crawled into his heart the idea that his job on this earth is to be friendly, be loving, and be truthful because he had a it's a religious, weird, strange, spiritual experience to be part of the Oddfellows, and um, we need to really feel that to get us to go to those Thursday meetings, and that's just using a muscle that is just not we're not trained with in our hyper-individualist time. I don't know, but I'm, I'm interested in hearing This is your this about this, is,
1: this. is why the left, should, it has to be different from just the liberal individualist model of, of, of rights and kind of, you know, you relate to the state protecting you from things and its negative liberty. I mean, the whole idea of uh, democracy and smaller republicanism and of, hell, virtue ethics, any number of things, understand that the spirit of the regime or of the polity is uh, Plato, a reflection of and symbiotic with the development of, of the soul and the individual, you know, is is brought up, as Astor Taylor says, uh, you're brought up by the city or by your uh, community, and that shapes you. And, um, and, and so, like, the left has to embrace this idea uh, that character, excellence, arete in ancient Greek, like... Who we are, our way of being, uh, which is interior as much as it's outwardly expressed, right? Has to be the focus. Um, a- and if we ignore that, we're missing a huge piece of it, right?
2: I just, you know, my response to what you're saying is, amen. <laughs> <laughs> totally agree. Nothing to add. <laughs> no notes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right on, right on. I I,
0: I wonder, you know... <clears throat> uh, Putnam has the very sundry explanations but I feel like the uh much more the, the the more recent stuff maybe is almost more important you know you talk in the in the uh film about how you know he wrote this book in the 90s about how like civic infrastructure is has been declining uh and then after he wrote that book and it got a ton of attention, you know, he's, he's being like, you know, f- feted by President Clinton and all of these like important institutions. It had no effect at all in terms of reversing the decline. It kept going. And in fact, it probably accelerated. I was, I was looking at, um, you know, specifically some, some, uh, statistics on friendship. Uh, you know, so like teenagers, who meet with friends almost every day. That was 50% of, of teenagers in 1995. It was 40% in 2010. It's 25% today, according to this, uh, statistic. The, um, men with no close friends in 1990, uh, were 3%. Uh, today is 15%. Uh, women, 2% in 1990,
2: 10% today. You know, so you, you have this like... The, the other side of that graph, can I just add a quick thing? Um, yeah. the, the other fun thing is like the amount of people with 10 plus friends in the 1990s was like huge. And it's it's yeah. like, it wasn't just that people had one or two friends. It was like... People had a lot of friends. <laughs> you know, it's but you like know, replacement Pete, replacement. these days you can have uh, thousands of
1: followers you don't know on Twitter and you can have, you <laughs> yeah. know, all these social media, quote unquote, friends that you've never met. Isn't that a replacement? Come on. <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> well, and that, I mean, I think that that suggests one of the things that's happening here is that social media is giving you this sort of like
1: simulated experience, fake
0: right? uh, a version of what.
1: Which is weird, Brian, because we met on Twitter. So there is also a component there that com- complicates it, because these tools or networks often can lead to real relationships, right?
0: Right, yeah, but the, the 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 key is like the real like real relationship stuff to 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 actually move away from the online interaction to talking to people face to face, and that you know the you you were mentioning before the uh how how television maybe you know as far as entertainment it's like people are bored they'll go to the you know rotary club or whatever uh now now you have a much more specific you know like like you can have a sort of friend in the form of a like twitch uh streamer who who sort of appears to be your friend despite you not actually having a meaningful relationship with you know, uh, him. They call
1: it parasocial relationships. Right.
0: Yeah. That's yeah. I think that's exactly the, the right thing. But I, but people crave, I think actual legit interaction. And I think on some level, they like people realize that this sort of sugar high version of actual interaction with other people is not the same thing. It isn't the real McCoy, you know, it's, it's, it's like a sex doll versus the real thing. And, and so, and <laughs> plus, so
1: like, plus he's not speaking from experience, folks. He's just saying he imagines that that's the case. We're just going to assume use your imagination. Uh, but, but also, Ryan, wouldn't you say that like, DSA, Democratic Socialist of America, right? Uh, that's a legit thing to join. Um, but like the Kiwanis Club doesn't have members flaming each other on Twitter and like tearing each other apart. So, like, maybe that's an interesting thing to, to, to talk yeah,
2: about. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I've, I've been trying to say, you know, there's this like thing in the law that like property is a bundle of sticks because no one can like define what property is. So they just say it's like 15 different things. And um, I like saying like community is a bundle of sticks. So, like, what does community do for you? Um, It or do for society. You know, and I can just list off like seven now. It's like, it's a way to transfer information. It's a way to have someone read your facial expressions and show empathy. It's a way to bring you soup when you're sick. It's a way to check you when you're not following the cultural norms. It's a way to encourage you and reward you when you are following the cultural norms. It's a way to transform you when you have a deep friendship of loyalty and with someone who's different and slowly over time you learn how to be different and be transformed by it. It's a type of person that invites you to Come to something, you know. I could go on and on. Um, It's someone who hangs out with you and goes on a hike with you. You know, it's all these things. Um, It's someone who helps you talk about, you know, trouble you're having in your family and lets you let off steam, thus putting less pressure on your girlfriend to hear all of your problems. So, um, so that it's not just them hearing all of men's problems, but actually there's other friends that can hear the problems too. So you're not burdening this. There's all these things community is, and internet community or parasocial interaction does do some of the sticks, you know, and, um, and you know, but it doesn't do all of them and it doesn't do really major ones and it doesn't do really major ones for you as an individual, like bring you soup when you're sick, but it also doesn't do really major ones for democracy, like really transform you or make you learn something new or, you know, show up together somewhere where there's a shared vulnerability. Like, you know, I might be vulnerable listening to Felix Biedermann, but Felix Biedermann isn't vulnerable to me, you know. And um, and so that's like a deep human thing about shared vulnerability. I'm not sure he's with, vulnerable to anyone. To anyone to be fair, that's- um, I was just sharing my parasocial relationships or whatever. And um, and it's funny because it's been around, you know, just a little funny tidbit. You know, Bob writes about parasocial relationships in. Um, in on like TV, like um, like the Today Show. They the designers of the Today Show wanted you to have the banter before the segments is the key to the Today Show, because it's like, oh, how was your morning, Matt? Katie, it was great. I was this. Okay, up up first, we have Brad Pitt or something. You know that banter made you feel like they were at your breakfast table. And
1: damn you know, it, Ryan, we've got to do more of that. We've got to yes, look, reveal that's our that's personal the, lives. That's and what we good podcasts to, like, are.
2: You know, and it's funny. Yeah. Like I noticed with Rachel Maddow. She she... She does this like she's like a parasocial genius because like she she started to do this really postmodern thing where she goes in the you know, we were so stressed writing our A block today. And so, like, my mom and her friends know all about A blocks and B blocks and cable news because she has, like, let you in to her, like, personal experience of being in 30 Rock planning the show. And that's what makes you, like, want to come back every day because that's what a friend does um, instead of yeah, just going right yeah. into the story. And I mean, that, that, that is why the TV,
1: like, causation that, that Bob talked about did make some sense this this was a replacement like you, you felt like you're part of the soap opera you were watching or the news anchor like you were that was your relationship in a way it wasn't yeah. just the entertainment it wasn't just the entertainment bit what it was like I have a routinized relationship where the same people I look at them on the screen and I feel connected to these same people doing the same kind of thing over and over again yeah
2: right. and people would write letters like why did you kill off the sitcom character and they'd cry you know it's and nothing against them that's normal you know this is what we do when a friend dies but you know you know, and it shows how deep it's gotten inside of you, but it, it's not the same, you know, and we just have to it's one of the things I like about Bob is people brush aside this thing as curmudgeonly or nostalgic but we actually have the data. You know, it's like we are joining less. We are un- unhappier because of it. Things work worse because of it. And again, doesn't mean we have to go back. It just means we have to go forward towards what community will look like now. And you know, it's been wonderful yeah. showing the film because people come up to me after the film and they tell me about their clubs. And it doesn't. Awesome. You know, awesome. sometimes it's people who rejoin the Oddfellows Lodge, and we were happy to show that in the movie. But you know, a kid comes up to me after. Uh, our showing in Austin, he goes, I started a queer skate collective. We meet every Thursday at the skate park. We're all the outcasts of Austin and we like teach each other to skate and we're really supportive of the skating. But it's not. And I, I was like, I know what you're going to say next. It's not about the skating. It's about the community. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and like that is what we want it to look like. A queer skate collective, not you know, you know, uh, Robert's Rules of Order at the Kiwanis Club, except that's also, you know, if you want to reinvent the Qantas Club, that's cool, too. You know, I, I don't want to diss yeah, the people yeah. that are holding out on those old orcs.
1: And that's important to the to the point you and the film, I think, are, are making. It's not I mean, obviously important to, to rebuild union power. Obviously, like there are certain really clearly political associations that <laughs> really matter. But but also, like, let your freak flag fly, like, pluralism of groups and interests and you don't even necessarily have to share interest to, to join an association. There could be something especially interesting about joining something where you don't know these people or share anything in common with them. Yeah. Uh, there was like the bowling example actually, right? That, uh, uh, what, what, what was the, the person you interviewed talking about? She's like, I actually like that. I, these are all strangers that I'm uh, interacting with. And, uh, and and I kind of am learning something by having to uh, relate to people that are so different or something. Yeah, that it's effect.
2: great. They right. have this amazing model. Half the season. Um, they have two seasons a year. One season is you bring your friends and make your own uh, team and play in the league but to do to sign up for that you have to participate in the other season which is they randomly assign you to um, to to a team and then you have to get to know other people in the league and you know they they've pulled off a miracle in social science work which is a cross class you know cross-class community is like harder than any other I think um, where They said, you know, he said there are lumber, you know, it's in Portland, Maine. He goes, we got surgeons and lumberjacks and truck drivers (laughs) and coders like in Portland hipsters on these bowling teams getting to know each other. And like, that's just such a we have so much class segregation in this country. It's like a it's that is that is like there should be an award every year for people who pull off bridging organizations that really authentically have people meet, not in the nonprofit industrial complex where it's like the, you know, the Ford Foundation has funded these people like visiting the other side, but actually organically meeting in a nice thing, you know? Um, And so um, it's, you know, it's amazing. We just need a thousand experiments on how to do that.
1: That reminds me Pete, uh, for those who don't know it's it's so yeah I've been teaching bowling alone for so long I forgot we, we didn't explain what the title refers
2: to. Can you can you get into what Bowling Alone Yeah, means? it's I think part of its virality was just that the title was so good, which is basically <laughs> Bob had started discovering all these declines in all these civic groups, PTAs, League of Women Voters, Kiwanis, things like that, and he wanted to write it up, and right before he was about to write it up, he meets this bowling magnate. Um, we didn't get into it that much, because like, he, he was like the dean at the time, and he, so he needed to do fundraising for the school, um, for the Kennedy School, and so he was meeting like, the rich people of Boston, and one of them was like a bowling alley magnate, and, the, and he goes, how's business? You know, and the bowling alley magnate goes, we have more people coming into bowl than ever. But all of our money is in bowling leagues and no one's joining the leagues. And the bowling leagues eat more and drink more. And our money is in the refreshments and the food, not in the balls and the shoes. And so it doesn't matter that all these people are bowling because when they're bowling alone, my industry's suffering. And so he goes, Oh my gosh, they're bowling alone. Um, and then that's kind of the message. And I, I think it has this nice dual message because it's saying it's not that we're not doing the activities. It's like we're doing the activities alone, and I made a reference in um, in one part of the film on religion where at the moment when religion's declining, they do polls on if you believe in God, and the polls show just as like roughly, you know, there's a little bit of decline from like 96% to 90%. But, um, you know, we still have like huge numbers of believing in God, but less than 50 percent of people are members of a congregation. So we're believing alone. And it's like all these things, you know, it's not that we've given up on activities. It's just we're given up on. Uh, you know, we're not doing the land parties. We're, we're 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 talking with people all across the country. You know, um, so uh, that's that's the origin of the I, I wonder. I wonder though. He also noted a
1: dramatic shift in trust in government, a decline from like, you know, questions like, do, do you. Uh, I don't know, think the government, I don't know if it was, do you think the government's doing a good job or do you trust them? Something like that. And it was like 75% of your best interest in mind or something. Yeah. yeah. yeah, That, that, those kind of questions. It went with like 75% to 25%. But it occurs to me, like, um, if you don't have people who are involved in associations or community generally, which is the place where you learn how to relate and think of other people's interests and you form all of these virtues, uh, how good are your institutions going to be when the people in them haven't yes. been, right?
2: So, yes, so there's probably we a relationship. There's a critique about that graph we've gotten what's in touring the movie where people say, aha, I got you. You're blaming us for not trusting in government. Like the government's screwing us over, you know, read Noam Chomsky or something, or Ralph Nader or something. Like they are they don't have our best interests. We're just coming to awareness of it. And I go, I agree, but. The way that institutions thrive is by joining. So the watchdogs that, you know, um, that Ralph Nader is telling people to form congressional watchdog groups and, you know, have every sector of a public interest watchdog group that needs you to join. You know, uh, you know, Code Pink wants more members to fight the imperial, <laughs> the imperial state. You know, we're not going to any the goal of making the government not just trust in government, but making the government trustworthy is also a thing that requires joining because, you know, there's also a bureaucratic civic culture. If, you know, we don't have a lively public spirited bureaucracy where there's a revolving door and people think that's normal and people don't, you know, have the Kennedy hunky dory sense that when they're working in government, they're working for the people. Um, when they feel like it's just for themselves and we don't have that spirit, that's going to make a worse government too. So, um, you know, it all, it all is connected. Talk
0: a little bit about the, uh, the pandemic. You know, you, you kind of yeah. reference this a little bit obliquely, but I think it's the, like the, almost the strongest possible evidence for your argument that you, you had this period of like roughly six months to a year where social life was radically disrupted. You know, people couldn't meet in person for a long time and it, it, it fucked everything up. Um, you know, you, you had, uh, uh, you know, you just look across the board, crime, um, you know, traffic violations, you know, and I just look outside my door in Philadelphia and the guy live like a block away from a school and people, people, um, it's actually come back down a little bit, it seems to me, but, but for uh, like a solid six months to a year, people just run the red light right next to the school um like just straight up like like solid red just run right through it sometimes at high speed and you know the that sort of antisocial behavior the just blatantly antisocial behavior didn't happen in the same way before the pandemic and you know can you speak to the extent to which like the, the, having a political community relies on these sort of like connections and people um, uh, uh, being sort of inculcated in a kind of belief that like, well, you it, it, even, on you know, maybe we're not Norwegians, but like there are certain standards yes. <laughs> where like you at least don't fucking run the red light right next to the school to run over the kindergartners or whatever, yeah. you know.
1: Yeah, you should so- run the red light next to Wharton and run over the Wharton grad. But but not the kindergarten.
2: No comment. Um, <laughs> the, um, uh, parody, parody. 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 <laughs> the uh um the there's a lot of connections between um between uh you know the pandemic and the social capital story so just just uh, as prequel to like the connection to how it's caused things to be bad The pandemic is partially caused by bowling alone. You know, we have a study from Christos Macritus and Carrie Wu, two sociologists who studied the correlation between places that had high social capital and the spread of the pandemic. Many people have this like vulgar sense where they're like, wouldn't it spread more in high community areas? Because they're all meeting up. But um, it actually doesn't work that way. When you have high community areas, more people listen to, uh, you know, did pro-social things like wear masks and get vaccines and trust institutions um, and feel like things were trustworthy to, you know, follow the protocol and, and not spread the disease. So, you know, the spread was, you know, it's like the going from, they have some number, like going from the bottom 25% of social capital to the top 25% of social capital counties will save X number of lives in the pandemic. Um, So, you know, we have hard stuff there. But then what does the pandemic cause? You know, we're bowling alone before the pandemic and suddenly all these in-person meetings are like gone and many of them aren't coming back. It was like a total – it was like a total – decimation of civic life in America. And it's not, you know, you lose the thread of the routine. Like so many of these orgs are just based on the routine of every Thursday night or every first Friday. And it's just really hard to get it started again, let alone having the buildings where they're meeting. Those buildings are shutting down and things like that because they couldn't pay the rent, um, Or let alone the bars and all these informal ways that you connect. And then Bob has you know, studies on, and this is one of my favorite ones on the connection between social capital and kind of like interpersonal friendliness, like in low social capital areas, people report flicking off, um, people while driving more in low social capital areas, more people report saying I could beat someone in a fight. It's one of my favorite um, questions they ask in like standard social service. Could you beat someone in the fight? It's correlated with like being a more violent person. Basically, if you think you can beat someone and like say that proudly, um, like those who answer definitely it's in low social capital areas where more people answer definitely. And what this comes down to, what's the causal mechanism of this like causation uh, or correlation? It's, the um, I, I really believe in this Roberto Unger quote, where he says, the phlo- Brazilian philosopher that I'm obsessed with, he says, um, "Our ideals are nailed to the cross of our institutions." By which he means anything you want has to be baked into an institution. No one just starts doing something because you think it's a good idea and you put it on a bumper sticker. So all these like bumper stickers that are like be kind or like can't you be a nice person or, you know, this is water, wake up and, you know, treat people better. That doesn't happen because you finger wag at people to be nice. It happens because it's a literal muscle that's built by interacting with people in way in shared missions where you have to interact with people and then you learn the muscle the art the craft the virtue of being a good person and um and so you lose the civic infrastructure and there's no amount of finger wagging or commercials about being kind that are going to make you kind the way we become kind is practicing kindness by having a hard meeting with someone who's different than you and you have to get the potluck ready anyway <laughs> And work together, and you learn a little bit about empathy, and learn a little bit about patience, and it's just like kindergarten, except like we have to do it as adults. And if you're going to lose that infrastructure, you're going to get worse at it, and you're going to run over more people while driving. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I don't <laughs> yeah. know. Do you agree? Do you believe in that? You know, how do, does that resonate?
0: No, it, it absolutely does. You know, I mean one one thing about me in particular uh, is that you know. I've been working from home, uh, since long before the pandemic hit since 2014. Um, and, uh, you know, but even prior to that, I'd spent when I was in the Peace Corps in South Africa, I would there was a teacher strike and I spent like over a month completely by myself. Didn't, didn't, didn't talk to anybody for about five weeks. And, I knew how, uh, not interacting with anybody, it, 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 it fucks you up. It turns you weird. Um, and you know, there are a lot of people who had to learn how to sort of manage the, um, social aspect of, of working from home. I think when the pandemic hit, there's lots of parts about working from home that are, Beneficial, you know, it's like you save on commuting costs and time. Uh, you know, you could save on the office space and rent and whatnot. But I, I, I think it's possible to, to, uh, understate how, uh, important the sort of social aspect of having an office is. And just more broadly than that, like interacting with others, uh, you know, that the, I definitely feel that crisis of loneliness myself, you know, like it's, it's hard to make friends nowadays. And if you have a work from home job, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it it can be very easy, you know, in a mechanical sense to just kind of never leave your house or only leave your house to sort of like walk around the block or whatever. And it's, I think that, 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 if, if you kind of give into it is, is profoundly unhealthy. And, um, you know, I think that people, they, they crave, they crave connection and they crave, they crave community. And it's, it's, we've just sort of systematically destroyed all of those, <laughs> the previews.
1: I, I want to be. I just want to be careful to, to like distinguish between, by the way, Ryan is now taking, uh, email requests to be his friend. He's open to friendship <laughs> with anyone. Please, uh, email us at podcast at gmail.com. Uh, anyway, but, but I also <laughs> want to distinguish between, uh, no, between the kind of isolation and loneliness that preceded the pandemic that was born from like antisocial behavior that uh, like whether it's in like the incel community or, uh, I'm not necessarily blaming people that have no friends, but like that is born of the kind of individualistic, uh, conditions that have been created in so many different ways that have alienated people at their workplace that have alienated people, uh, in any number of ways. I mean, even Kurt Vonnegut, famous lefty socialist, right. Talks about the, the two biggest killers, loneliness and boredom. Right. Um. And your documentary does a great job to talk about how loneliness is, is social, political, economic. It's not just individual, right? It, it is, uh, so important, right? In many ways. But like the pandemic is, uh, an example of these terrible things happening because of a public health crisis and the failures of, of public health, um, responses and the failures of a kind of solidaristic communal, uh, response in so many ways, in so many places. Um, and I, and I don't want to forget, like, the kind of mutual aid that popped up in the face of the pandemic, the kind of, uh, as you say, Pete, uh, lessened death and lessened harm in those places and spaces where, where people had those networks and had the communal bonds formed. Um, and then last but not least, there is also a kind of ableism angle here where, like, because of Zoom and because of the ways that there was, like, a need to, to move things virtual, uh, there, there, there was a good thing I think that came from accessibility and meetings that were just default in person. And there is a, a good thing about hugging and embodied kind of like you know situations that are necessary for us. But like so many things, also now are accessible to more people because totally. it's on Zoom. And and so maybe if you want to talk about the com- complexity, yeah, there. you
2: know, and I, you know, I and I had some people come up to me during the screen. It's so wonderful after you write a book or you make a movie, then you get like all these conversations afterwards that make you want to go back into the edit room and you wish you had, you could show it to everyone and then make a second movie. Um, and I had some people come in and, you know, and I get this a lot with like my localism stuff where they say, you know, in, I live in suburban DC, you know, they're like in suburban DC, it's very nice to care about your hometown where it's nice to live in your hometown. You should live in my hometown where everyone bullied me. I was totally isolated. I was oppressed basically, and getting out of it. And having getting out of it is what some people say to the localism stuff, like, why are you telling everyone to move to their hometowns? For the community stuff, they say, having internet friends saved my life, you know? Um, And having even parasocial internet friends saved my life, just like listening to a podcast where I felt heard. And so I really don't want this to be, like, internet bad, um, you know, not internet good. I think it's just... It's more, you know, and I really don't want this to be a finger waggy thing about like you should join, you know, I think it's also it's kind of a collective project of rebuilding the civic infrastructure to give people the, you know, the, the options and to have more, you know, on ramps to community so that when you're ready to have it, you can get more of that bundle of sticks that comes with community and you know, and it might be you know Bob talks about alloys where he says like the best internet communities are the ones that are a mix of online and um, and in person, and he says actually, yep. in person groups that have an online component end up meeting more because they have yep. their text thread that. Make someone because they have a text thread which they didn't have before or a DM group. Someone says, Who wants to go to the Wizards game? You know, I got extra tickets to the text thread, which never would have happened before with your formal Thursday meetings. And then you end up meeting more. And so, my encouragement with all these folks is, you know, have your internet friends, but you know, Save up some money and go, you know, go have your annual retreat somewhere you know, with your internet friends and go meet up and see what joy comes from that. And totally. for those who, you know, who are benefiting from not being able to meet in person, you know, try to get more of that bundle of sticks by having, you know, being vulnerable on Zoom with each other, you know. Making it a deeper and deeper community in the way that you can. Um, Don't let it just stay on the surface, you know, Um, and uh, good things will come from that. And we literally need it to form the political uh, groups that are going to heal this country before we're all destroyed by the political groups that are destroying our country. (laughs)
1: A, artificial intelligence is is in the news lately, right? Like ChatGPT and all this stuff, uh, and some people are even forming parasocial relationships with their their little uh, AI responses and so forth. Uh, what what do you see with the challenges ahead? Because maybe we can connect this to you know uh, Eddie Gloud at, at the end has this great point, um, and so do you about I think Gloud says if if the polis is going to be saved, we have to imagine being together differently, and um, and I think you know. You you talk about, Pete, uh, community is what you get when you do what you love together. Um, So this idea of imagining new ways of being together, new understandings of community, uh, maybe talk about that hopeful call to action and and what it means in the face of, again, advancing technologies and, and things which we might think have something to do with the downward trend uh, over the, the many decades. Yeah,
2: I I don't have like a good take on AI. I, I think it's almost, it's freaking me out. It's I'm getting like totally freaked <laughs> out. Not on, like just on a purpose level. I'm like not, I'm less thinking about like, oh, it's going to escape and enslave us or something. Like sure, I'm more sure, just yeah. like is this the final like death knell of anyone feeling like we have purpose and is the like final thing that's having us connect to the gears of reality going to finally go loose and we're going to all like float in the ocean of meaninglessness? So that is like, I'm scared. I like have a theological. Is it, is it, is it because
1: of the transformation thing you're talking about? Like the, the kind of virtue ethics, Aristotelian sense of like you develop relationally your own excellences and you do your own, um, whether it's spiritual or, Uh, other types of virtues, um, that, that make you who you are and what you care about and who you are and what you do. Like all of that is being maybe, uh, threatened by a substitute, uh, thing, which
2: I'm a big believer in the lumping together of, you know, what we do and what we love and who who we are relationship with and the place we're in all are wrapped up in a rope together And you're playing with fire anytime you take out one string of it. And I don't want to be like a full on Berkey and saying like, never pull out a string, but you know, when something's coming and it's going to cut like seven of those strings, you know, (laughs) make you, you know, faster than we're going to build up the civic infrastructure. So like all, you know, my only take on AI with regard to civic culture is urgent, urgent, like move fast, like, we need a democratic culture because, like, technology is built based on the dominant hegemonic culture, and it will be built for like hyper individualism if we don't. And like corporate control, right. um, and so, so, technocracy. So it's less if we scary. Don't
1: have, yeah, yeah, it's less scary if we have that kind of uh, solid foundation of, of communal. Um, association and belonging uh, to as a bulwark against the dangers. It, it could be maybe incorporated less dangerous Yeah,
2: tech sometimes. always gets subsumed in the, like cultural context, you know, you invent rocket technology in a highly communal status time and you have the Apollo program, you have other rocket technology in a hyper individualist corporate time and you have Elon Musk, you know, running the whole thing. And it's, you know, it's just like very, you, when things emerge, it's really coinc, it really matters the co- coincidence of like what's in charge at the time when things emerge. So that's one scary thing, you know, but by one thing, my non-Luddite take on community is, is people make community with whatever they is the material around you and like i had friends in high school and we were the 711 club and we went to 711 and got slurpees and 711 is like a horrible corporation that is like so less meaningful than like Our peers 50 years earlier or our equivalents 50 years earlier going to like a locally owned thing, but we still felt a lot of meaning getting the Slurpees at the (laughs) 7-Eleven and and like thought it was funny. And, you know, when I met someone after one of our screenings and they said, "Um, I'm part of a soccer fan club Pringles club. And I go, what what does that mean? And he goes, well, we have Austin FC and that's our like football club. And we have like, we're trying to create the European soccer, like fan spirit that they have in Europe and Latin America. And so we have like a big fan team and there's like thousands of us. And so we have sub clubs inside of the fans. And I started the Pringles club where it's all people, we all bring Pringles and we wear Pringles and we eat Pringles and we all bring each other and it's like funny and we send each other Pringles, but none of that matters. What matters is they're all becoming friends and like, I don't think that that's any less important than another thing. And it's mediated by someone picking up cultural trash, basically like in our stupid branded hyper, you know, stupid era of like, and just trying to find lo- love and life in it. And I think um, people are going to find weird things with technology and cyber stuff and weird mixes of technology and in person and, and, You know, geocaching is interesting, you know, people doing TikTok hashtags to meet, you know, there are some TikTok hashtags that are resulting in weekly clubs that some people have have made and you know we'll see what comes of this I my one thing is though I really don't want it corporatized and I really don't want it hierarchical so like I don't want it to be go back to the office and only have your community inside of our like hierarchical thing and I don't want it to be all these like Silicon Valley things where every year someone's saying like I've got an app for community where you know I actually gonna- can, can I say
1: the one place you should not have community unless it's in a union is at the workplace yes. <laughs> that is that is that is not your favorite Family, you have a different family and your friends are not that, that, that is a
2: move by the, the powers that be to try to get you to work more for less. Yeah, it's, like don't a demonic, buy it <laughs> it's a demonic pseudo community that yeah, like, yeah. and that happens all over the place. Like, like all types of hierarchy, and this is something Bob points out, all types of hierarchy make a fake pseudo community. And then they work really aggressively to break up your authentic community. Like oh, they broke up slave communities yeah. They didn't want them meeting up because they knew community is power, and that's why we have union avoidance. They know community is power, and then they try to create like a pseudo demonic version of it. Um, and so uh, we gotta we gotta keep that in mind. Like not all communities made equal. But there's hope. Join
1: join or die. But there's hope. Yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag not all communities. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That I think that's probably all the time we have now, Pete Davis. Um, the, the movie is called, we'll, we'll link to it. Uh, I, I do recommend seeing it. Um, it was a little Absolutely. bit of a difficult watch for me. Uh, you know, kind of, kind of, kind of struck me deep, you know, in some ways as being like a little bit of a lonely individual myself. Uh, but it, it's, uh, definitely worth watching. And, um, we'll, we'll, we'll link to it in the, in the show notes. And, uh, we appreciate, um, you and, and, and Bob Putnam for putting that together and, 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 and all the other folks who are involved. Yeah.
2: And I'll say something on, on that spirit, Ryan, part of the message of the movie that I hope, I hope, I hope you can, um, can be a takeaway for viewers is you are not alone in being alone. One. Yeah. And two, it is not just your job to like self-help come together. We all, if you have extra, you know, if you're someone out there who has the extra bandwidth or the extra like space for friendship and and civic creativity, you need to make the clubs that can get the lonely people together. You know, we need to have a building project and we all got to work together to come together. And so um, I don't, you know, no one is alone in this project of coming together um, and, That's right. and feeling what we're feeling right now. Appreciate that, Pete. I'm going to invite
1: Ryan over to my place uh, right yeah. after this podcast and uh, everyone email Ryan and I invitations. We're going to join a bunch of groups. <laughs> <That's
2: right. Yeah. laughs> Thank you.
0: All right. Thanks. Thanks Pete. Thanks Thank for you. listening everybody. We'll see you in the next episode.